This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Rabbi Stephen Weil, the National Director and CEO of the Friends of the IDF, which he joined recently after 11 years with the Orthodox Union. In addition to his remarkable communal leadership, I have found that some of the most incisive Torah commentary created in the past 20 years exists on some fairly obscure OU websites, and they're from Rabbi Stephen Weil. From a beautiful meditation on Laban in the context of Pesach to an analysis of the word prayer, which I quoted at length in my forthcoming book on how the meaning of life is revealed through the Haggadah, Rabbi Weil's remarkable Torah is there for everyone to see. It has been my pleasure to study Torah with Rabbi Weil, which is one of the reasons why I am so looking forward to this podcast. However, this will be the first time that we have studied together without the benefit of being accompanied with cigars. In fact, one of the most memorable study sessions I have had was right before the United States Embassy was opened in Jerusalem, we were there together, when Rabbi Weil and I studied together in that great cigar room in the Mamilla Hotel. I would prefer to be doing this podcast with a cigar right now, but I'm recording at home, and I believe that if I lit up, my status as the rabbi's husband would be threatened. Rabbi Weil, welcome to the rabbi's husband. Mark, I just want to say it's an honor to be with you. In your analysis, in your critical reading of text, personally has enabled me to grow, and it's enabled me to look at the text very often in a differently, in a more significantly profound way. And I, and I want to thank you for your friendship and for your, for your ability to not only be a critical reader, but a critical analytical thinker. Well, thank you. That's, that's such an honor and such a pleasure to hear. Thank you. Well, I am so excited to discuss with you um, your chosen passage, which is the greatest real estate transaction or perhaps non-transaction of all time, almost non-transaction, turned out to be a transaction. This is in Genesis 23. So please tell us what happens in Genesis 23 with this transaction and why it's significant to you. And then we'll uh, really get into your theory as to how it's so central to the very conception of Jewish thought. You know, Mark, I, I actually want to share with you and discuss with you today a whole thesis that Rabbi Soloveitchik has reading this text. But you look at it on the surface and it's almost like one of these, you know, manipulative uh, funeral home. That's why in, in 50 states, uh, all 50 states have rules that before a burial can be done, the funeral home has to show every little detail of what they're charging. No hidden costs, no taking advantage of a bereaved family. And you look at this on the surface and you think that's what this is. They were taking advantage of a bereaved Avraham who lost his soulmate. But what happens is the more we're going to dig in this, we find a totally different text and a totally different point of why God shared this with us in chapter 23. So uh, just to frame it, Sarah has just died. The Parsha's Chaye Sarah, interestingly, life of Sarah, the first thing that happens in the Parsha is she dies. And then Abraham, after a few very interesting events where he first eulogizes her and then cries, it's another interesting question in and of itself. Then it comes time, of course, to bury Sarah. And Ephraim, who owns the land, offers to bury Sarah for free. And Abraham says, no deal. So tell us about the significance of Abraham um, refusing a free burial and what he says instead and, and why it's so significant to us. The introduction that we're given is they call him Nisi Elohim, the Prince of God. 
Now, it's very fascinating because they're polytheists. They're not ethical monotheists. And they have this profound respect for him. And what do they say? You bury your loved one in the choicest of our sepulchers. Meaning what? We're going to give you something. Remember the MasterCard with Peyton Manning, that famous Madison Avenue campaign. You know, there's certain things in life that are priceless. And for everything else, there's MasterCard. You know, no matter how much money one has, you can't buy your way into Arlington National Cemetery. If you have not given your life and fought for the country, you can't buy a plot there. So what they're saying is the choices of our sepulchers, meaning we're going to give you the Hittite Arlington National Cemetery burial. We want to provide that to you. For free. For free. The greatest honor anyone could be given. That's something we give to presidents. That's something we give to heroes. We're giving it to you the Prince of God. It's a beautiful statement of the Jewish view of relationships with Gentiles in the sense that the Gentile in this story clearly has a deep and abiding relationship with God. The Gentile accepts God every bit as much as Abraham does. Even though they're polytheists, they recognize, so to speak, they recognize um, this man, the Prince of God. As did uh, Tzedek even before them. So what happens? He says something that is maybe one of the most enigmatic phrases, not only to them, but to us, the, the readers of this text. He says, Ger v'toshav anochi imachem. I am a ger, meaning I'm an alien. V'toshav, I'm an Aryan. I'm a resident with you. Well, that, that's an oxymoron. You can't be an alien and be an Aryan. You can't be a resident and be a stranger. But he says, he says, Ger v'toshav anochi imachem. So, so the English translation that I have from the art scroll, let's just be sure this is the right translation because it's so important we get this right. It says, I am an alien and a resident among you. So why is that so hard to understand? The Judaica press says, I am a stranger and an inhabitant. Yeah, those are all synonymous terms. Yeah. Right. But, but if you um, moved to London for a few years, you would be an alien of England, but a resident of England. So why is that complicated to understand? Great question. Because a toshav means, in, in by the way, in, in Jewish law, toshav means there are certain financial obligations you have tax-wise into the society. So wait, is toshav alien or resident? Resident. Toshav means I'm one of you. Oh, so it's more than I'm residing in your town. It means I'm one of you. Anochi machem. I am with you. Okay, so if you moved to London for a couple of years, you would not be a toshav of England. You would just be living there, but you wouldn't be. So the, the, the term Toshav and resident here is much more, it's existentially meaningful in the way that living in another country is not in our context. Yes. Okay. So that's very interesting. So Abraham says, I am an alien and I live existentially among you, which your point is that sounds oxymoronic. Yes, that's the question. And that's the problem. They have respect to him, but they don't understand it. And there's another phrase that's challenging here. He keeps using this word achuza. Now, a kever means a burial place, a plot. What's achuza? Now, I'm going to see how, how does the, I have the Judaica press. How do they translate it? They don't even translate it here. Achuza. Ger v'toshav anochimachem. I'm a stranger, an alien, and a resident with you. Tanuli, please enable me to have, or give me, or transfer to me. Achuzat kever imachem. He doesn't say a kever, which means a burial place or, or a, you know, a grave. There's this word, you know what achuzah means? We have this in Leviticus. Achuzah means something that is in perpetuity in my family, meaning it's a complete ownership, but it's not just a financial ownership. It's something that's an heirloom. 
Well, that, that, that makes sense because the Arch Girl translation uh, looks a little odd, but, but not if you explain it. It says, I'm an alien and resident among you. Grant me an estate for a burial site. So estate for a burial site seems a little complicated, but the way you're saying it is their translation is it's a burial site for you and for your estate. In other words, for, for your people forever and ever. Yeah, and I think the term we would use in English is heirloom, meaning it's something that, that gets transferred from to children to the generation to generation. Or we would say it's it's a family gravesite. In other words, if I if someone said, where's your family gravesite? The implication would be that's where my ancestors are buried and that's where my descendants will be buried. And it also has a, a financial connotation of total control, meaning Arlington National Cemetery, I have the honor of being buried there, but that's national property. It's not mine. Achuza means it's mine, total control. So what is um, Ephron uh, offering Abraham then? So what do they do? There's an interesting verb here, and this also, you know, sort of almost jumps off the page. He keeps saying to them, Shima'uni, please hear me. Like, for instance, towards the end of verse eight, okay? And the back and forth, I'll give you an example. In verse 11, Ephron says, hear me. There's back and forth. Then in verse 13, Abraham says, Shima'uni, please hear me. And then in verse 15, Ephron says, please hear me. And by the way, then finally it says, okay, the last time it says it is verse 16, by Yishma Avram and Avram heard. Here's the point. In English, when you say to me, Mark, are you hearing me? Do you hear what I'm saying? You're not asking me about my audibility. Did I hear the words? You're asking me, did I comprehend? Did I understand? And in Hebrew, that term hearing also has the same connotation. Not only is it audibility, it's also comprehension and understand. Do you understand? They never understood him when he said, Gerbetoshav, I'm a stranger and I'm an inhabitant. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an alien and I'm an alien. They didn't hear it. I'm an alien and I'm an inhabitant. Grant me an estate for both sides. In other words, grant me a place where I and my descendants can live that we will own and control. But they said, we're giving you Arlington National Cemetery. You, you can't get better than that. And he, he refuses that. So they're saying you get, you, you get the Arlington National Cemetery of the Hittites their territory in their time. And he's saying, I don't want it because I want a place that I can own and control that is existentially and exclusively mine and therefore not yours at all. Exactly. When they finally understand, when Ephron finally understands what he's saying, you see something that's wild that almost jumps out from the page here. Ephron keeps saying, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. There's never any discussion of money. Abraham is asking him, but I want to pay for it. I want it to be a, an achuza, something which is totally mine, something which is an heirloom from generation. So Abraham doesn't believe he can own it unless he pays for it, which gets to the question, why is Abraham, who we know is a great businessman because he's acquired great wealth, why is he demanding to pay for something that he could get for free? And by, remember, all along, Ephron wants to give it to him. What happens? Finally, in what we have to wrestle with is what, what happened there, what changed. And I'm just, I want to find the verse, verse 14. So Ephron answers Abraham and he says to him, now verse 15. All right, sir, Adoni is like my math means it's like a term of respect. Sir, hear me out. A land which is listed in this language, Arba Meo Shekel Kesar, 400 silver shekel. Okay, so what, what is that between us? And then not only that, but in the next verse, which is verse 16, he doesn't just give him Arba Meo Shekel Kesef, 400 silver Shekel Kesef, the last two words, Over La Socher, international currency. A Socher means um, a money changer, meaning it's, it's currency that could be used in any country. 
It's international currency. In other words, this what is this? It's a cave. That's a huge amount of money. Right. It's an enormous amount of money. People try to figure out how much it is. Obviously, we can't, but it's an 400 silver shekels. So Ephron tells Abraham, all right, you want to pay for it? It's 400 silver shekels, which is an absolute fortune for, as you just pointed out, a cave. And the 400 silver shekels, this is not some local currency. This is gold. Yeah, I want something that that's a currency could be used anywhere. So again, if you choose, and that's the way most many learn it, he was like, you know, that manipulative funeral home director taking advantage of a bereaved man. That's not the way Rebbe Salvechik read this text. What happened? How did he go from wanting to give it to him to charging this kind of money? And what he says is this. What are you? you what do you mean? You don't want to be buried with us? What, what are you, better than us? What are you, different than us? We're offering you the greatest respect that we could give anyone, and you reject us. You know what it's like? I, I use modern analogies. What, what's the matter? You can't send your kid to a public school? What, you, you won't eat our food? You, you, you won't go to school with us? What, we're not good enough that you to be buried with us? What are you? you know, you're a pariah. You're, are you arrogant? Do you think you're better? And one could see where Ephraim would be insulted. He said, offering you a plot in Arlington National Cemetery for free, and you're saying it's not good enough, you want to pay for it and make it something else. And so he's insulted. Yeah, and you have to have total control, like it's only yours. Separate Jewish burial. What is that? See, what they didn't understand, if I can go back to that Gerbe Toshav, that oxymoron, what Abraham was saying is a Jew leads, I'll, I'll use a term that Rabbi Salvage didn't use here, but he used very often, a dialectical existence, meaning as opposed to being binary, are you a Republican or a Democrat? Are you conservative or are you a liberal? Are you pro-life or are you pro-choice? Those are binary choices. No, the Jew leads, so to speak, a dialectical existence, meaning no one is more committed from a point of view of loyalty to the country they live in. No one has a greater religious obligation to the country, whether it's civil responsibilities, whether it's education of all children, whether it's the welfare of the country. In other words, that's what a toshav is. Dina de Adina, right? Exactly. But Dina de Adina is on the one hand an obligation. Saying that I'm a toshav means I'm going to go above and beyond, meaning I'm obligated to pay taxes. No, I'm going to take my own money above and beyond the tax money, and we're going to build civic, we're going to build libraries, we're going to build parks. And we're going to do absolutely everything. So we are going to be completely devoted citizens of the country in which we reside. So we're saying the law of the land is the law. That's just the minimum. What Toshav says here is we're going to go to the maximum. We're going to be the best citizens there are. Exactly. And you, you know, I'm saying this anecdotally. I've found probably the most loyal Americans that I've ever met are survivors because they knew what it was like to live in someone else's land. And, and, and again, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein used to refer to this as the Malchut HaChesed. This is the nation of largesse, of a giving, the caring and loving and giving nation. What a beautiful patriarch statement. I actually just uh, read a letter that he wrote in the 50s where he basically said it was an obligation of the Jews who looked up to him to vote. It was interesting. It was a question at that time, perhaps post-Holocaust. No, it's an obligation to vote. He always referred to this country as the Malchut HaChesed, the nation of graciousness, the nation of love, the nation of giving. So the point being, at the very same time, what do you mean you're not going to break bread and eat our food? What do you mean you won't let your daughter date my son or you won't let your son date my daughter? What do you mean you have to be buried? What, do you think you're going to a different place than we are? 
You have to be buried in a separate cemetery. I'll give you an example. The halacha Rabbi Salvechik said is that he quoted his grandfather. You and I know that a Kohen cannot be engaged in you know, involvement with the dead, unless it's their immediate relatives, right? They're not involved in the Torah, the purification. They don't go to the funerals. If you have a Jew that's buried in a Gentile cemetery, so if there's no one else, the Kohen should be the one who goes and, and digs up the grave and reinterns it in a Jewish cemetery. I mean, that's how significant this is. Think about, you know, the principles we have of many areas. But wait a second. We're more responsible above and beyond our responsibilities as an American citizen. We as Jews are much more responsible for the benefit and the welfare of this country, whether it's our time, our energy, our resources. How do the two of those mix? That's the whole point. So I've read this passage many times and I've never thought of it this way. But so basically what you're saying is he's our father. Abraham is educating Ephron, but much more importantly, educating us as to what it means to live in the diaspora. What he's saying, particularly not the, the diaspora in a good country in the diaspora, there's a big distinction, like America is a great country. So he's educating us as to how to be American Jews. And what you're saying is, he's saying you are to be a Toshav, you are, you are to be great citizens, full citizens, great citizens, and also an alien. And what you're saying is these things seem contradictory, but must not be. That's the dialectical existence. Yeah, in other words, you ever see, I, I used to live in Beverly Hills. And a lot of times in California, people would always have bumper stickers, you know. You knew from their bumper sticker where they were at. I would say if a Jew was going to have a bumper sticker, this would be a Jewish bumper sticker. This Abraham defined for us what our relationship is vis-a-vis the greater society that we live in, the Gentile society that we live in. It's a dialectical existence. I think part of the greatness of America is that it enables 23-4 so magnificently. Because of America, there is absolutely not even a theoretical contradiction between being a great citizen and being a proud Jew or a proud whatever. Although I'm going to say this, I think it does lead to certain tensions. I, can I share with you one story? It's a, my, it's a story about my father. Please, absolutely. We're in the cattle business. We're German Jewish refugees, you know, survivors. And we're in the cattle business in upstate New York, dairy farms. Under Jimmy Carter, Remember how inflation was was just, you, there were 21, 23%. I think I remember having one of those buttons, a win with inflation now. It was one of my first memories, political memories, yeah. So Jimmy Carter, who, whose brother Billy was in agriculture and his family was in agriculture, he had something, it was a government agency, the FHA, the Farm and Housing Administration. They were giving 3% loans to farmers. 3% loans was making money. Which in those days, these days it sounds like no big deal. It sounds like a little high. In, in those days, 3% was ridiculously low. When the bank was giving 18%, getting money at 3%. Well, of course, what happened? American agriculture expanded way above and beyond what the, the society needed, not only internally, but for export purposes. When Ronald Reagan became president, of course, one of the areas that was going to be clobbered was agriculture only because we were hyperinflation. He had to bring things down. And he really shut off the faucets in terms of subsidies for milk, subsidies, subsidies for grain, etc. It was one of the worst calamities in American agriculture in the history of this country in terms of the number of farmers who went bankrupt and who, who for people for eight, 10 generations were in agriculture. Now it was over. You know, there were divorces that came out of this. What happened in 1981? The interest rates went back to market rates. Part of the way that, that the Reagan administration brought inflation into check was really bringing about, so to speak, a recession. You know, in other words, the subsidies to farmers were just cut way down and therefore farmers couldn't function anymore. Many of them went bankrupt. 
and cut back the agricultural industry in this country. So I remember, and but what else happened simultaneous to that? Uh, first under Alexander Haig, but really under George Shultz, that's when American military aid to Israel really expanded. It was under Reagan when it went from almost nothing, which Israel paid for, to actual military aid in the foreign in the foreign affairs bill. Now that was one of the great accomplishments of APEC. And in it, it was done for America's benefit. But on the surface, I remember there were one of the veterinarians who used to, you know, work with us, who used to bring come in and work with our herd. And we would ship cattle all across the country. And he said to my father, he says, you know, our last name is Wild, but it was they pronounce it Wheel, Billy Wheel. He says, Billy, I'm going to say to your face what everyone else says behind your back. Now, keep in mind, we were the only Jews in this area, within about a 40-mile radius, upstate New York. He said, listen. Your people, your neighbors, these are, these are our people. They're going broke. They're going bankrupt. Their, their marriages, their families are being ruined, okay, because there's not enough money. And you, who are, you know, you meaning the Jew, is pro-Israel, you know, you're making the case. And now they're starting to give billions of dollars annually for military aid to Israel. Well, what are you? Are you an Israeli or are you an American? What are you, a Jew or an American? You know, we don't, we don't like it. You understand? Now, I understand why he thought the way he thought. And of course, there's a million answers you could give him about this wasn't being done for Israel. This was being done. This was the cheapest battleship America will ever have in the Mediterranean, will ever have in the Middle East. But he didn't want to hear any answers. You, you can't give someone an answer when they're not listening. Because in his mind, he had the same problem as Ephron. What are you? Are you an American or are you a Jew? And by the way, I'm going to tell you a story Rabbi Salvechi told. The famous... Rothschild, Rothschild banking family, you know, they start, they were originally in Frankfurt of Main, but they were in France. There was a Parisian branch. There was a London branch. So the famous leader of the Parisian branch was Edmund de Rothschild. They, the French Rothschilds, are the ones who enabled the first Aliyah, the Eastern European Jews, to develop Zichron Yaakov, you know, the Carmel winery. Those areas in the Galilee were all funded by, the, by Edmund de Rothschild. He put in his will that he would like to be buried in Zichron Yaakov. So what happened? He died. It was not a time because the British had shut down you know, immigration. It was war. After the declaration of the state of Israel, this was a number of years later, the family fulfilled the wishes of their ancestor, and they reinterred his grave, and they buried him in Israel. It's called Har Hanadid, the mountain of the philanthropists. And, wasn't, and de Gaulle was furious, right? Exactly. Charles de Gaulle said, excuse me, I thought you're Frenchman. Your father lived as a Frenchman, a loyal Frenchman, and died as a Frenchman. I thought you were loyal Frenchman. De Gaulle, after this incident, his relationship with the Rothschild family was never the same. In fact, he actually tried to get attorneys to stop it, and there was nothing legally that could be done. But what infuriated or incensed De Gaulle is, what are you? Are you a Frenchman or are you a Jew? You know, I, I'm a Catholic Frenchman. This person's a Protestant Frenchman. We're a Frenchman. Apparently, you're not. Is this, the, is this the dynamic that Joseph and Jacob had with the Pharaoh when Jacob insisted to his son, Joseph, don't bury me in Egypt, even though they had been given comfort there and freedom there to be Jews for, I think, almost 20 years? Yeah. The commentary say the reason that he made him take an oath swearing by God's name, because that was the only defense he'd have to the Pharaoh, that I swore by God Almighty's name, the God who saved you from the famine. Words, Jacob knew that there were going to be problems, and that's why he had them. You know where you also saw that tension? 
when the Pharaoh wanted the brothers to be government employees, to be ministers in the government, what does Joseph do? He says, tell them your, your shepherds, and he sticks them in Goshen. Far away from the Nile, which is where the capital of Egypt was, just stay far away. But but your burial example, that's that's exactly what, when, when Jake, exactly, Jacob makes his son swear. And it's rare in the Bible when someone makes someone else swear, like Abraham does it to his servant, probably Eliezer, right? It's because normally when you trust somebody, you don't make them swear. You know, it's, all right, I trust you. You don't, but occasionally they make him do this additional step. And so it's so interesting. One of those very few instances is when Jacob makes Joseph swear that he will be buried outside of Egypt because he knew what a big deal it was and what a sacrifice it would be of Joseph to insist to the Pharaoh that this land of Egypt is not good enough for my father to be buried and he must go to what we know as Israel. You know, it's one of the most, and I'm just going to digging for another example. But one of the most offensive, offensive halachot to Gentiles are, is this halacha called stam yenim. It's not wine that was used for libation for paganism. No, it's wine that's superior wine that's the vehicle of socialization. And yet, if, unless it's denatured, unless it becomes inferior, it's not something that we can you know, drink together because it's the vehicle of socialization. On the one hand, there's a tremendous responsibility to look after every Gentile, every American. We are loyal. We are bound to our fellow Americans. There's a, there's a kinship. On the other hand, when it comes to the socialization that leads to marriage, there's a boundary. But I would say as a, as a Karaite, that halakha is not in the Torah, and therefore I don't accept it. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is where, why the rabbis create that category? That, you're right that that's not in the Torah. That's a rabbinic category. But the rabbis can't make something up. In other words, they can't create an a priori category. They can only set a fence around something. Why do they do that? And I think already the antecedents, this is before the Torah. This is Abraham is before Mount Sinai. But you see those antecedents already here in Ger Vitosha. Right. And what, so what Abraham is telling us is you can be a full citizen. You can be a great citizen. And uh, you can sacrifice as a citizen, you can give as a citizen, you can be generous as a citizen. Of course, you should vote. You should do everything that the very best citizen has to do. Yet you can, should, and will always remain an outsider as a Jew. And the two are not contradictory. Just figure out how to resolve it. It reminds me of what uh, what Maimonides said when um, asked, uh, what, what should one do when um, a scientific truth conflicts with the Torah? He said, well, the Torah is true. Science is true. Your interpretation of the Torah might be false. If we ever see a contradiction between our role as citizens and our role as Jews, there's no contradiction. Our interpretation of one of them must be false. So rethink how we're thinking about it. I remember Rabbi Dr. Tendler, whose his, his doctorate was as a PhD. Here's Rabbi Feinstein's son-in-law. He was the head of not only the biology department, he's also one of the, the, what they call Russia Yeshiva, one of the great scholars at YU. And I remember I took three courses with him in biology. And he always said exactly what you're saying, Mark. He says, if there's a contradiction between the Judaism and science, he said, there's one of three factors. It's either bad Torah, it's either bad science, or both. It could be bad Torah and bad science. Exactly what Maimonides said, right. But, but good Torah and good science cannot conflict. So if you think they do, what could be wrong? Your interpretation of either. And that, that's essentially the same thing here, right? So if, you, if we think our obligations as Jews or as citizens conflict, they don't, they can't. And, uh, you know, this also, the same dynamic came up on a rabbi's husband episode with um, Rabbi Ari Berman. You, you must know Ari from- uh, He's a friend, yeah, he's a good friend. Yeah, of course. He had a brilliant interpretation of the Akeda, where he, he talked about the rabbi's husband. He said, there are three Hinanis in the Akeda. The first is with um, Abraham 
uh, where God says to Abraham, effectively, you're going to slaughter your son. And Abraham says, Hineni, I'm here for you, God. Then Isaac says, my father, and he says it in a way to be like daddy. And he says, I'm here for you, my son. And then the angel says, Abraham, Abraham, twice. And he says, I am here for you. So then uh, Ari said, why does he say twice? Because what he's saying is, I'm present. So what was the conflict? In one, one case, he was present for God, but God wants him to slaughter his son. In the second case, he's present for his son, who he's about to slaughter. There seems to be a tension. The angel comes with two Hinanis and says, Abraham, the father, and Abraham, the, the son of God, the father of Isaac and the son of God, you'll never be in conflict. You can be present for both. You know, if, so if you ever think you can't be present for both, your interpretation of one of them is wrong, but you can always be present for both. And what you're saying, it's the same thing with, I'm a Toshav and uh, what's the word for alien? Gare. Gare, I'm a Gare and a Toshav. They, they're, they're actually, they shouldn't be in conflict, but our interpretation might be flawed if we think they are. There's an interesting Rashi, and what Rashi did was also was a critical read. When it describes at the very beginning, it says that, you know, it's as if God is giving a eulogy to Sarah. He's describing to us, Sarah, she was a woman of 100 years. She was a woman of 20 years. And she was a woman of seven years. These were the years of the, the days of the life of Sarah, the years of the life of Sarah. Right. This strange repetition. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Hebrew is no different than English. Say 127. What do you mean she was 100 years and 20 years and seven years? So the Yalkut Shimon, that's a, a, it was a medrash. It was actually recorded in early medieval times in Frankfurt am Main. So words, some of these are classic medrashim and some of them were more later medrashim. Basically says this. And, and Rabbi Salvage developed this beautifully. He said, what's a seven-year-old? There's a certain innocence. You know what I mean? There's a certain innocence, optimism. This, this, this complete enthusiasm. What's a 20-year-old? There's a beauty. There's a dignity. There's an optimism there. You know, you, there's, you haven't suffered aging. You haven't, most 20-year-olds haven't lost their parents yet. You haven't had wounds in business or disasters in business. There's a certain optimism, excitement about life. Opportunities are abundant before you. You can be anything you want to be, do anything you want to do. No doors are shut. All doors are open when you're 20. And what's a 100-year-old? It's a person of wisdom. You know, you've gone through the ups and downs. You've seen, you know, you've had disappointments. You've had successes. There's a certain wisdom you have that's not just book wisdom, but it's life wisdom after 100 years. So what, so to speak, the eulogy that God was giving to Sarah is that she did something that most of us don't do. She was able to retain the very positive qualities of each stage in life. In other words, a lot of times you get an older person, they're always looking back. They're never looking forward. They're always telling you about what happened 20 years ago and 40 years ago. Or, or people who could be that old, they could be, they could be middle-aged and they could be cynical. Yeah, that's another thing. A lot of times, if you've been burnt in life, exactly, you're cynical because you've got emotional baggage and scar tissue. Well, and, and you say all, the, all this enthusiasm of the seven-year-old and idealism of the 20-year-old, you could say, it's all a bunch of nonsense. I know how the world really is right? That, that's the cynical 50-year-old. And in comes God's eulogy of Sarah and said, no, 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 no. You should carry the enthusiasm of a seven-year-old and the optimism of a 20-year-old into your middle age and never be cynical. Always retain the qualities of that stage in your life as you pass through it. Don't, don't leave them there. Keep them. There's a gentleman, I've met him three times before he passed. It was Bernie Lander. He was the man who developed Turo College and Turo University. And Turo, I mean, they have literally have graduate schools all over, all over the globe. This man who suffered from macro, what's it called? The, you know, the eyes, he couldn't see anymore. He was maybe 93. 
the man was a builder like he was a 20-year-old, like a 19-year-old. He was dreaming about opening the next campus. In his 90s, God bless him. He, he wasn't bitter. He wasn't cynical. And by the way, he, you know, look, he'd taken his lumps in life. But but there was this optimism. There was, he was always looking at the future. And, and at the same time, he had the wisdom in the life experience that we don't have at 20. That's right. And you're so right. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, uh, during non-COVID days, uh, Dr. Ruth comes to our home pretty much every week for Shabbat. and She's 92 and a half now, and she always has a new project she's working on. It might be a book. It might be a documentary. It certainly will be a speech that involves travel. 92, whatever. Like she, she has the, the energy, the enthusiasm, the generosity of spirit of someone who's 25. Michael Warren would tell me that his mother, who's 92, is coming out with her first book. I mean, this is what you do at 92. This is Sarah, right? You just you take the energy, you take the enthusiasm with you. And if you can combine energy and enthusiasm with wisdom, that's how you become Sarah. So to use the phrase, you know, she's the matriarch of the, not just of the Jewish people, but of all ethical monotheists, she's our prototype. She's our role model. That's right. Well, beautiful. Well, Rabbi Wild, thank you for such a fascinating conversation deriving. I mean, I learned so much as always studying with you, uh, Saturday morning Torah studying. We are, we're a week ahead. We just studied on Saturday. I wish I had this wisdom uh, a, a few days ago. But anyway, um, thank you for such incredible insights into uh, Genesis 23 and coming into so much. Now, the see, I, I have to give the Surgeon General's warning. None of what I mean, I may be the I might be the retailer, but the ideas I cannot take credit for. All these ideas were either things that I read or heard from Rabbi Soloveitchik. I have to give credit to where it belongs. Well, the, well, God bless Rabbi Soloveitchik for so many reasons. So the concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to uh, another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says in the book, he says, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man has saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there's no such thing as a grown up person. So uh, Rabbi Weil, in all of your years as a farmer, as a rabbi, and as a communal leader, and as a scholar, what are two things that you learned about mankind? What appears on the surface is 99% of the time not the case. In other words, we all have this need to put somebody into a box or into a category. Never do that because no one ever fits that category. And what you see is not who the person is. They're much more complex. Right. And that probably explains why, and of course, you know this vastly better than me, so tell me if I'm wrong, but why in the Hebrew, there's no singular word to describe a face. There's only panim, which is plural, because nobody has just one face. So because nobody has just one face, there's no need for a word to describe it. So we only have faces. So therefore, what you see can't be everything because all, all you're doing is seeing one face, which doesn't really exist. A second idea, if, if a person's not always learning and trying to grow, it's, it's not a life worth living. In my opinion is that the older we get, even though our time on earth becomes less and less, but the older we get, you know, the more rich our learning is because it builds upon our previous experiences. Yes, there's, there is so much to that. I actually have a, a section of my forthcoming book where uh, I reference a passage in the Haggadah to how learning is cumulative, which is why it says, even if we are all men of wisdom, understanding, et cetera, et cetera, we should still be doing the Seder. Why? Because you will learn more if you're a man of wisdom, understanding, knowledge of the Torah than, than, than if you weren't. And I believe, doesn't the Talmud say that the hundred and first time you learn something is incomparable to the hundredth time. Yeah, and, and I think the logic there, it, it, you know, again, I, one could argue on this, but I think the logic is this: the hundred times, so to speak, that was their quota for really internalizing something that was not written, you know, so that they would remember it. The hundred first time is not so that you retain it; 
it's because you love the material. You're not obligated to do it at that point. You're doing it because you love it. But I also think you, you learn more. I mean, so it's easier to learn something with a base of knowledge. So the more you know about something, the easier it is to learn the next thing because you have it's so much easier to associate new things to that than the first time. So that's why learning is cumulative. The, the more you know about something, the easier it is to become a master of it. But what you just said, Mark, that's the whole concept of a seal. In other words, Rabbi Salvage quoted his grandfather, the greatest honor is not the person who gets Chatan Torah, the one who gets to finish the Torah. It's the one who gets the next aliyah, the one who starts it. Why is that better? Because the whole simcha, the whole joy is now that I've gone through it this time, now I'm excited to, to start it all over again. But when I start it all over again, I have a better basis and foundation. So I'll appreciate even more. I wish I had known that before I submitted the book. Hadran Allah, the Daitan Allah. Hadran is Aramaic for Chazar. We're going to return to you. That's what, what are you saying when you finish it? And that's, oh, great, I'm glad I finished. No, you say, I can't wait to return to you. Daitalach means what you, this knowledge imparted upon me, I'm always going to take it with me. I'm always going to enable it to enable myself to grow from it. That's what we say when we finish Deuteronomy. Or any section of learning, in, you know, whether it's Talmud, whether it's Chumash, whether it's prophets. Hadranalach, we're going to return to you, Vedaitanalach. Fascinating, because normally, that, that, and that is really the Jewish conception of learning, because normally when we learn something, we're like, uh, I'm done, I'm not going back to you. Like, I'm done. Like, I, I got that. Like, and and in, in some field, like we don't have to relearn what two plus four is, right? But this is not two plus four. So when, when it comes to learning something profound, it's we'll return to you. Well, Rabbi, thank you for such a fascinating conversation, as always, on so many different subjects, all stemming from this uh, sacred gift we have from God, the Torah. I have to thank you. You know, you know what? When we go offline, we got to set up a time to get together. Absolutely. Because every time I spend time with you, you stretch my brain and you force me to question my assumptions. And that's the biggest gift you can give anyone. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.